Greetings again. This is Gary Zacharias with the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm taking a second look at a Jeff Myers book. He's head of Summit Ministries. This book is called Understanding the Faith, part of a series of books. Uh, this one's a survey of Christian apologetics. And I'd like to look at chapter 16 this time. Subtitle is God a Mean Bully. And they have a quote here from Richard Dawkins. And uh, of course, everybody likes to go to Richard Dawkins when you want some outrageous statement. <clears throat> and here's what he says. He's a former zoology professor at Oxford. In his book of uh, called The God De Delusion, Dawkins says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Whew. Wow. So what uh, Myers wants to tackle in this chapter, he's just going to take four questions instead of everything that uh, Dawkins goes on about. But he starts in, it's going to be, did God commit genocide or command genocide? Does he hate homosexuals? Does the Bible endorse slavery? Is the Bible oppressive to women? So those are the four areas. So he starts off in the, the first section here, just trying to understand the God of the Old Testament from his own perspective. And so the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a lot different from the regional gods that were worshipped in that time period. And he said, uh, according to writings that we have from the time period, many of these other gods display the characteristics of which Dawkins is accusing the God of the Bible. But the God of Israel was a complete contrast. For example, Isaiah 40, verse 18 says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? And then they have things, uh, he says, five ways that you can compare God to the other gods of the period there. The God is the God of all peoples, and not just an ethnic or a regional deity. So I think that's interesting. Number two, as opposed to inanimate statues, where uh, statues worshipped by pagan cultures that were found in the cycles of nature, the God of the Bible is a living God. And that phrase, living God, appears a lot in the Old and the New Testament. Number three, uh, other gods were incomprehensible to the people. They didn't know anything about them. It's it hard to know much. Kind of a dark area. But the God of the Old Testament is portrayed as the Lord of history. He communicates, and he communicates truthfully with followers. Number four, how else is the God of the Bible different than these lifeless idols? Well, the God of the Bible wants conversation with his people, and he reveals himself in all sorts of acts and speech and events. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And then number five, the God of Israel is the creator God. He doesn't hide himself. He makes himself known in the works. <clears throat> so it says in, when you consider all these differences, it's no wonder that the ancient Israelites were told, don't worship any other gods. So the point is that the Bible reveals a God that's in stark contrast to these fantastical tales of heavenly power struggles and all the other gods that act like a bunch of hormonally charged up teenagers, actually. Um, okay, so let's move along here. So it said uh, Israel was to be set apart. He said that should clear away some of the fog of the Old Testament. He said that's true, especially with some difficult passages where Israel is commanded to get rid of and root out others in the surrounding nations. So here comes a key question then. 
Why would God command his people to wipe out entire people groups? Now, that's called genocide. Of course, we think that's a heinous thing to do. So, a lot of people say, wouldn't you judge God accordingly? What he's done? And uh, said, well, for the people to settle in that land, the, the people of Israel, to settle there, they had to deal with two people groups. There were the Canaanites and the Amalekites. Okay, so they were already there. And these people were a threat. And if they became like them and kind of blended in, that would undermine God's purpose for the world, to save the world. So what do we know about the Canaanites and the Amalekites? He said, look at the Canaanites. They lived the kind of lifestyle God wanted his people to avoid. Sexual deviance, uh, temple prostitution, incest, bestiality, child sacrifice. Uh, I read somewhere else that they said other Ancient writers were just horrified by the people of Canaan. They were just such awful people. For example, they worshipped Moloch, and he's one of the chief gods. It says the image was a human figure with a bull's head and outstretched arms. And they would heat up this uh, idol by a fire within it, and then they'd lay children on the arms, and the children would then roll off into a fiery pit below. How awful is that? What about the Amalekites? They're the other people group that were in the region. They did more than just wicked practices. They were always trying to destroy Israel. And that was long after even the Israelites had settled in their territory. So it was kind of like a neighborhood gang, just kind of waiting around the corner to hurt the Israelites whenever they could. Okay, so here's the question that comes along at this point. What does it mean to utterly destroy a people? Well, it says the Amalekites keep showing up. They're into... The first Samuel, or 250 years later, they're in Chronicles, so that didn't really happen. And then you read in the 10th chapter of Joshua, Joshua led the Israelites, and it said, left none remaining. And it says over and over again, it talks about utterly wiping out the Canaanites and the Amalekites. But then you read in other passages that the Canaanites and the Amalekites are to be driven out, not wiped out. So it says, uh, if you really look at the text, it says, you'll find out the Canaanites do survive Joshua's invasion. In fact, if you read parts of Joshua, it says the Israelites should destroy them totally. And then it says, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or their daughters for your sons. Well, if they're supposed to be dead, why would you have these instructions regarding treaties and intermarriage? So how do we explain this? Well, says it's kind of like epic stories of the time, and you had certain written conventions that were kind of unfamiliar in our own time. So it says, uh, for example, you have a Egyptian ruler. He says, the numerous army of so-and-so was overthrown within the hour, annihilated totally. But it says, no, those forces lived to fight many more days, on and on and on. And it says, uh, Mesha, the king of Moab, talked about Israel has utterly perished. Well, no. So it says the Canaanites were not wiped out. It says over and over we see uh, evidence that the land was still being occupied by them, and they are heavily armed, and they are entrenched in the cities. And so that's the same area that supposedly Joshua said was had destroyed them all who breathed. They said, what's going on there? And I said, well, maybe it's kind of like standard battle accounts of the time. Hyperbole was being used. Kind of like a boxing fan who says, uh, knock his head off. Or a football fan said, man, we destroyed them. And uh, they re referenced Paul Copan. And I'd reference that as well. Copan has a book out called Is God a Moral Monster? And he takes this question on 
big time. And it says, uh, Joshua was speaking the language that everybody in his day would have understood. He wasn't deceiving. He's just saying, we trounced them and let it go at that. All right, here's another question that this chapter is dealing with. So we'll, we'll take that one off the table about the genocide. No, it's not true. Does God hate homosexuals? Wow, there's a big one. And you go back to Leviticus and it talks about uncovering nakedness, which was a euphemism for sexual relations. And it says you're not supposed to have sexual relations with parents, with a parent's spouse, with children, and on and on and on. And they had these uh, laws that in some cases called for the death penalty. And you go, well, what's going on here? It says some believers have narrowly emphasized just the part that talked about homosexual behavior. It says making it sound like the Bible just targeted people who had same-sex attraction. But there were all sorts of sexual sins that they were talking about here because they're trying to protect people from uh, major sexual corruption and abuse and uh, for a way that people who wrongly acted on their sexual impulses to be redeemed. Okay, so we get into things like Freud. What did Freud say? Well, that the suppression of sexual desire would hurt people. And then Kinsey came along and he challenged the traditional views on sex and marriage and he says, uh, it's difficult to imagine with Freud and, sec uh, Freud and uh, Kinsey in the background, it's kind of hard to imagine that God is the one who actually designed sex, and he made it to be normal and healthy. God is seen instead by people today, oh, he's the enemy of freedom, and if you restrict sexual freedom, it makes people unhealthy. So I said uh, to Freud and Kinsey, sex is something we do with our bodies, but to God... Sex is something we do with our souls as well. And so our sexual behavior really does reflect our, our understanding down deep of who we are as people and how we ought to treat others. Um, the biblical passage assumes that people have the ability to avoid acting on destructive feelings. And to, if you fail to do it, you're going to end up with abuse and corruption. So having that whole section that I just touched on in Leviticus Having a whole section in the law about sexual activity underscores a pretty simple point. God says if you get involved in sexual immorality, that's a tipping point toward idolatry. You're setting something else up in the place of God. So to God, sexual sin is not just an innocent private act between two people, and God just says, ha, I'm going to punish them. Jeremiah 7.19 says, Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? So what's going on there? Sexual sin is an act of rebellion against God's design for his image bearers. Uh, Meyer says, really what we're saying is, I'm so intent on satisfying my sexual passions, I'm willing to break down my community, I'm willing to destroy relationships, shatter trust, forgo God's plan for my life, I'm going to choke off the blessing God intends for those around me. So it takes what's really a good aspect of creation, turns it into a source of hurt and diminishment. So, he asked this question, should sexual purity mean so much that people who violate it should be killed? Isn't that what it says in Leviticus, the infanters should be cut off? Well, what was the situation? What, what circumstances could they actually be put to death? And Myers is honest. He says, we don't know. He said, maybe it was a strongly worded warning, just like earlier when you talk about battle that they wiped them out and they didn't. And they said, maybe there were circumstances in which sexual offenders who refused to repent and refuse to leave would actually lose their lives. It's not their place in the community. 
So it says Christians have often used, unfortunately, some of those passages to target unfairly homosexuality. And he says, uh, you're missing the point here. God didn't express his mercy by overlooking sin, but providing way of repentance. So Leviticus also makes provisions for sacrifice that will atone for these kinds of sins. That's Leviticus 6. And the most common phrase in the instructions with all the information in Leviticus says over and over, the key word for sacrifice, when you sacrifice, was forgiveness. Even in the Old Testament, we see that God set up a, a ransom in the form of an animal to be killed. That was a costly thing. Now it's showing how seriously God took Israel's purity. Uh, the sacrificial system made it clear God's goal was not a bunch of vigilantes running around, checking into everybody's tents to make sure they're doing the right thing. He says they're trying to create people who pursued purity in every area of the life. So think about the children of Israel. This was a kingdom that was under God's reign. It was a set-apart community. If they failed to act as those set apart, then they had to repent and be forgiven. If they refused to repent, they forfeited the right to live in the community, maybe risk being put to death. So God expected self-discipline. And we have every indication the nation was healthy and prosperous when it had that kind of self-discipline, but it's dysfunctional and abusive when it was not. Does that sound familiar? It does to me today. Self-discipline is kind of disappearing in our country. And what's happening? We're getting dysfunction. We're getting abuse like crazy. And, of course, they mentioned, uh, Meyer says, the question for us today is different than it was for Israel. We don't live in a nation chosen by God in the same way Israel was. They're what, what was called a theocracy. You know, God is your ruler. And, of course, we're different than that. So um, he, he opens this up a little bit. He says, you know, living pure, set-apart lives in a society that's given over to evil isn't very easy to do. It's just a lot easier to give in, isn't it? And the point here, as he's wrapping up this section, is the Bible's call to faithfulness is not anti-sex. It's the opposite. Biblical sexual mores break the shackles of false freedom, and they bring the people who are imprisoned by it into the light of Christ, where there really is true freedom. And boy, that's for sure. Um, he says, basically, what we're talking about here is if you're going to be sexually mature is you restrain yourself. You restrain yourself from acting on your impulses outside of a man-woman marriage. And that's whether your impulses are heterosexual or homosexual. The best love is based on our wills, not just our feelings. That's how God made us. I think it was interesting. It says there was a study of Harvard students who had experienced a Christian conversion and it says before the conversions, they described their sexual relationships as less than satisfactory, and it didn't provide emotional closeness they wanted. And then the ones who became Christians said, you know, even though people thought, oh, they're going to have a biblical standard of chastity inside of marriage, that's going to seem strict. But it said they found that these Christian converts, that the clear-cut boundaries were less confusing than no boundaries at all, and it was really helpful in relating to members of the opposite sex as people, not just sexual objects. What a great idea. And Meyer says, if you violate God's sexual standards, that diminishes us as image bearers of God. And uh, says, by following my own rules instead of God's, this is what we would say to our sexual partner if we're not buying into the Bible, by following my own rules, I'm making my desires my idol, and you have to participate in the sacrifice. Allow me to use you as an object for me to achieve satisfaction. Oh, that's not good. 
And he's talking about in Rome. He said the Christian morality had a great influence. He said of Christians, it was said that they share their table with strangers, but not their spouses with strangers. It says the morality of Christian families gave him such an advantage in society that a Greek physician, uh, yeah, physician named Galen said this, Christians had such an intense desire to attain moral excellence that they're in no way inferior to true philosophers. Wow. And then this spread. The whole society began to see the wisdom of Christian sexual morality, and they started passing laws to protect marriage and prohibit sexual exploitation of kids. So as he wraps up the section, he said, does God hate homosexuals? No. Those who struggle with homosexual attraction are just as much covenant members of the bride of Christ, the church, as anyone else. Their will is uh, they're going to be faithful to God by refraining from homosexual behavior, just as people who have heterosexual attraction are going to refrain from sexual behavior outside of that man-woman marriage. So to summarize, he says, when we see what the Old Testament really claims about sexuality becomes clear, the passages are not targeting homosexuals for discrimination. So uh, he says this may not satisfy everybody, but I think he's done an excellent job there. Well, this is only half the chapter, but it's such a rich chapter. I'm going to save uh, the other half for a future podcast. Well, thanks, and um, have a good day. We'll do another podcast soon.